This week, the debate on a four-day school week. Is it the new way forward in public school? Washington state legislators want to make it harder for teachers to restrain violent students in the classroom. And a devastating study of Kentucky public schools says despite increased spending, outcomes are worse than ever. These stories and much more coming up this week on The Lion Week in Review. Welcome into this week's edition of the Lion Week in Review. It's a weekly look at the culture, the courts, your state capital, and your kids. I'm Chris Stigall. Now, let's meet our panel. Some of the men and women behind the stories at ReadLion.com. Michael Ryan is executive editor. Josh Mann, managing editor. And Faith Perkins is a staff writer at the Lion. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. A couple of studies to kick off the week this week, and they're interesting because as I was kind of reviewing them, uh, I don't know if they're contradictory or complimentary, Josh. A four-day school week at the Lions. Uh, many parents, at least as you've analyzed Missouri parents, a lot of them don't like the idea of a four-day school week. Why? Yeah, this is a really interesting study. Um, and in fact, I should say there's going to be discussion about this in Jeff City. And my colleague Michael Ryan here to my left is going to moderate that. That's oh, really? 6 p.m., Monday, February 26 in Jeff City, there's going to be a panel of education policy experts. But essentially what the research found is that 64% um, of parents do not, uh, or 64% of parents prefer a five-day week. They do not want a four-day week. Even in districts in Missouri, there's 170-something districts that already have a four-day week. They're mostly rural. Even in those, only just under half of those parents actually like it. Um, of all Missouri parents, only 24% say they would prefer a four-day week. One of the big concerns is, what are they going to do on that fifth day for child care and other things? Mm -hmm. And so um, not only do parents not want it, but the study also found um, a study of literature about the issue found that um, there are hardly any benefits and uh, more negative than, than, than positive. Michael, is this born out of finances, the reason people are going to, school districts are going to four-day weeks? Is that a population problem? Uh, smaller rural schools, are, uh, they don't have as many students, so it's more costly to stay open five days a week, or is there some other practical reason besides that? Well, I think another reason is teacher recruitment. Um, it's a it's a perk that they use to attract teachers. But then that begs the question, what if all districts are doing it? How does it become particular to that district? Do you have to go to three days? <laughs> I mean, that's what do you do after that? Yeah. Um, you know, kids, I'm sure, are going, woohoo, this is great. You know, parents are going, well, okay, same taxes, same costs, same teacher salaries, just less instruction. Um, and, you know, the five-day work week is going to be a shock to the system if you're used to being around four days a week for school. That's a good point. Faith, um, do you know any communities near you that have a four-day school day at present? Have you heard this employed in any community you know? Um, is it working? I, I haven't. I actually attended a middle school that was four days, um, and they actually just switched back to five days because that's what parents want. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the other study uh, at uh, readlion.com is on homeschoolers. And, uh, Josh, I'll start with you again because I know, uh, if you don't mind me bringing up a personal anecdote, you are a homeschool dad. Yeah. And I think it's kind of an interesting, it's either counter or complimentary, however you view it. Homeschoolers learn more in fewer hours than those in public schools. So, um, 
what might you say then to parents who say four days a week for public school is not enough? I mean, I, it seems like homeschoolers are figuring it out. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think they are complementary in that it, when you think about it, you've got a bus. If you go to a brick and mortar school building, you've got to be bused there. There's going to be class changes in the older grades, especially. There's downtime for the younger kids. There's bathroom breaks. You've got to line them up, get them down the hallway. And one thing the study looked at, um, there's been multiple studies, and these were kind of brought together by the HSLDA, uh, uh, Homeschool Association. Um, when they looked at public school students and the amount of time per hour they're actually engaged in learning. You know, you're sitting there, some of the time you tune out, um, in their study of, of at least 100 students, they found it was about 16 minutes per hour on average that the student was engaged. That's not a lot of time. So you think in an eight-hour school day, if if you sixteen minutes per hour per hour, and so a homeschooler potentially it's a one teacher to maybe two or three or four kids. They get more attention, and they can just be more efficient. Um, So in some sense, I think it's unsurprising. But one thing that the story brings out that I think is important is this could have policy ramifications because. Some folks in the education establishment are concerned about restricting or regulating homeschool families. But some homeschool families are saying, look, you can't make us have an eight-hour day, but we don't need an eight-hour day. And so when you look at some of the policies that are are being looked at by states, uh, what do we require homeschool families to do? I think one of the ramifications is you you shouldn't require them to be in class as long because you can just simply get more done at home. Wow. So, you know, Faith, according to this study in public school, if I'm doing my math right, public school here talking, we're talking about a little over two hours in an eight hour day. Kids are engaged, according to this study versus homeschool, like in an eight hour day, public school kids, just a little over two hours. That's pretty damning if that's true. It is. Yes. And I wasn't like I was in school not too long ago. I remember half the time in the class, we're looking at the clock ready to leave. I mean, attention spans are only so long. Yeah. Michael, it's compelling then when we're talking about reducing, you know, a day of public school, when we're talking about maybe a little over two hours in an eight hour day, taking one of those days away versus homeschoolers. Yeah. And I'm not sure looking back to my uh, school days that I'd be more efficient to even with four <laughs> days. But, you know, this 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 also brings up the question of the regulation by the government um, in in effect, would be seeking to make homeschool more like public school, which which in this case the study shows would be less efficient, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's going to be calls for more regulation of homeschools. I did a quick Google search and found these kinds of headlines about homeschooling. Will homeschooling make my kids socially awkward? What is the biggest disadvantage of homeschooling? What are common homeschooling pitfalls? What are homeschool kids? Why are homeschool kids so annoying? A potential weakness in homeschooling when family and friends are opposed to homeschooling. You know, it doesn't seem like homeschooling is getting a fair shake out there. Yeah, it's interesting. And then um, there is a whole healthy debate, which we don't have time to get into right now. Homeschool versus Christian school. A lot of homeschoolers are not particularly nuts about private Christian school for various reasons and school choice. So um, but we won't settle that one today. Faith, you have written a story about and this seems to be uh, constant in the news anymore. And uh, I know you guys cover it because it's a cultural phenomenon. Now we got to, uh, we got to acknowledge, and that is biological men 
dominating women's sports yet again. Yeah, so a news source in Canada actually got a tip from presumably another volleyball player. Um, There was a game on January 24th where five biological men were competing in a women's college volleyball tournament or game. (laughs) Michael, I, I, I don't... I don't know when this breaks. Maybe it doesn't, or we're going to talk about this for the rest of our lives. But do you think there is a cultural swing back to this madness no longer happening, or it's just kind of the new cultural norm? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think the movement is toward more female empowerment, uh, biological female empowerment. Uh, You know, Riley Gaines, the swimmer from the University of Kentucky, has been on the forefront of this. And last year, she just flat out said, we have to have girls who, when the whistle blows, they don't run, they don't swim. They stand up on the block and they don't go. Talking about a boycott. She's asking for kind of a new sort of pioneer in female sports. She goes on to say, I think this will get worse before it gets better. Talking about the injuries and and the indignities that she is talking about. How many girls have to be injured playing against a male How many girls have to lose out on scholarships and trophies and titles? How many girls have to feel violated in the locker room? It's so true. Josh, you've seen the videos. I know we've even talked about this on the show before. Videos of biological males playing with women, particularly in the sport of volleyball, jumping up, spiking a ball, and with such force, it injures an opposing female, biological female. Yeah, in fact, in this uh, one of the regional Canadian associations, Um, Reportedly, two injuries have taken place already in this past season. And of course, one of those stories, which you just mentioned, that we've covered in North Carolina, there was a young lady injured, um, concussed, and had some lingering effects of that concussion. And North Carolina, not long after, passed a fairness in women's sports bill that then banned biological males from competing. And so, you know, you can see some states are beginning to take action and... um, it, it may get worse before it gets better, like Riley uh, Gaines has suggested, but it's definitely, uh, I think, something that's uh, it's on the radar now of, of a lot of people, and I think uh, you know policymakers have to look at this and address it. And that girl in North Carolina, she suffered from headaches, impaired vision, and partial paralysis. Man, uh, you you would hate to think injury is what it's going to take to change the dynamic there, but uh, maybe. Michael Ryan, uh, we were just talking about retaining teachers and maybe going to four-day work weeks makes it more appealing. I will tell you what doesn't make school teaching in public schools appealing is when you can't do anything to restrain kids that become physically violent, and that's the case in Washington State. Yeah, and I understand where they're coming from. Uh, The bill there would uh, crack down on things like chemical restraint, including pepper spray, corporal punishment, Physical restraint and isolation, although that describes my upbringing pretty <laughs> succinctly. Um, you know, the, the, the problem is not necessarily the teachers. Yeah. Uh, the problem is the violence uh, from the students. 60% of teachers in an NEA survey, survey worry about mass shootings. And in the New York Post last December, uh, uh, the newspaper reported that teachers were quitting in droves because they're scared of student violence and lack of punishment. One teacher said, quote, even though I ran a really tight classroom, the disrespect just skyrocketed. Probably 75% of my time was dealing with discipline, 
75% of the time. The stress of it was just too much. I even hated driving down the road to school. I didn't want to go anymore. That's the teacher. Faith, I grew up uh, in an elementary school in the 80s. You ready for this? Paddles. Straight up public school paddling. Each teacher and the principal had their own, there's not made up, their own paddle. And I was on the receiving end of one once, as a matter of fact. That was a public school. You know, today, we're talking about teachers that are terrified they may be physically assaulted without repercussions. I mean, we've come a long way and not for the better in a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think October of last year, that teacher that took away someone's Game Boy was assaulted and beaten. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, I, I mean, I, there, there was a time, I don't know if you are familiar with schools like this, but in more rural communities, I'm not even advocating we go back to it, but there are rural communities, uh, people my age remember well yeah you know there was a different era of punishment once upon a time yeah i think i think there there has been a cultural shift and a difference in um the level of respect that we expect from young people i think there's also in this um there's a fear of litigation there's a fear that's driving schools um to want to avoid any lawsuit possible. And so I, sometimes I think that can be unhealthy and lead us to a place where we kind of lay our common sense over here and, and we just go, we, we just try to avoid the lawsuit. And I don't know how much of that, there have been some teachers injured when they're trying to intervene. There's been some students injured as well. But one of my concerns is if you've got to start training teachers on what they can and can't do in a, in a violent situation, when you're in an emergency, it's hard to recall all of that training. And so it's, you know, it's going to drive more teachers out because they don't want to, not only do they not want to deal with the violence, they don't want to deal with a, a lot of new training yeah. in order to deal with the violence. And so I think there is a, a root to the problem that has less to do with maybe this policy and more to do with uh, the causes of violence among among young people. And, and Michael, doesn't this get back to why so many parents feel like they have to remove have to remove their kids from public schools? If you've got disruptive and even potentially violent kids that have really no repercussions, um, how can any normal kid learn? Right after a while, they, that they can't. Just, yeah, you they can't. can't. And uh, you know, we had a situation in our family where a child was actually being bullied and she got in trouble with the principal um, because of the particular dynamics involved. It was just a very unfair situation. Discipline has, has become kind of a, a four-letter word in a lot of schools and because of the fear of overuse of it uh, with certain types of folks. And, um, you know, it, it's hurting everybody in the classroom if it's disrupted the learning. Faith, the story at uh, readlion.com about the University of California. We often talk about these cultural phenomenons like they're a huge segment of society, but in this story, it points out that when we talk about non-binary facilities for certain uh, trans people or what have you, it's really not a huge population that we're talking about and we're spending a lot of money on it, right? Yeah, I think it's 1.9% of students, according to the survey, that identify as transgender or non-binary. 1.9, Josh, yet how much money is being spent on 1.9% yeah. of the student population? And this is the University of California system, which is a large, there's uh, just over 300,000 students. Um, of the, of the, 
That 2% or so of students include transgender and non-binary. Now, non-binary students would simply reject essentially being labeled as one or the other. Um, but it's a very tiny, much tinier percentage who are actually trans-identifying students. A man, biological male, for example, who identifies as a female. And yet they are renovating many of their bathrooms. Probably their goal is to renovate all of them to make them gender inclusive. And it's at a huge cost. In fact, um, in, within the last year, Loudoun County Public Schools, which has been in the news quite a bit, proposed uh, completely renovating their bathrooms. And the, the cost was hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. And so I think the taxpayer is right to ask how much do you spend for such a small percentage of the population? Are there other solutions? And Michael, is it retrofitting? Look, I, uh, I guess we can debate the merits as to whether you should at all. But if you're going to accommodate these folks and they're such a small percentage of the population, retrofit an entire building for them versus maybe their own facility? I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think in terms of even entertaining less than 2% of a population. What, what's the answer there, do you think? Uh, go slowly, go carefully. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the movie Field of Dreams taught us, build it and they will come. Well, that's not necessarily true in real life. It's yeah. certainly not true in business. Any business owner will tell you that. The question is, is it, will, will it be true in bathrooms? Um, you know, Abigail Schreier, who wrote the book Irreversible Damage about transgenderism, she called it a craze seducing our daughters. She writes that there was a sudden severe spike in transgender identification among adolescent girls in the 2010s, calling it, quote, a social contagion, social contagion. You know, so the question is, if this is a craze, how expensive is it going to be? And finally, Josh, uh, there's a new report on Kentucky public schools you've covered at the line. Pretty interesting. Yeah. So um, basically, the. Bluegrass Institute, a, pub, a public policy institute down there, was, had done some study about the outcomes in Kentucky schools, outcomes in terms of student performance versus uh, public investment in education. And essentially, since 1992, um, the results have uh, not risen very much, even lower in some cases, in spite of a vast increase in funding. And so what they did was they looked at um, Per one thousand dollars, what are the what are the outcomes? And it's um, negative thirty six percent to fifty three percent. So the Kentucky education dollar is thirty six to fifty three percent less effective than in the early nineteen nineties. And what they're finding is that, in spite of claims to the contrary, more funding does not lead to better results in public education. So you can't simply throw money at the problem and expect students are just going to do better. Yeah, in fact, there has never been, I mean, to my knowledge, you could probably look across the country, Michael, at states and their school, public school spending. I would bet almost none of them have ever had a year where they've spent less than the year prior. Yeah. Right? Well, that's certainly true in my household. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I found this from a Biden administration blog at whitehouse.gov. Now, mind you, this is the Biden administration linking competition in the economy uh, to lower prices, higher quality goods and services, greater variety, and more innovation. 
What a horror show it would be if we applied that to education, huh? <laughs> Before we wrap up today, I always like to ask our panelists about their favorite story, something that they'd like us to pay particular attention to at ReadLion.com. So, Faith, I'll start with you this week. Ladies first. Is there a particular story you'd draw our eyes to at ReadLion.com? Uh my favorite was Jillian's story that she did about the study. I think it was really well said and um, very factual. The, and, and that was the study we covered today? Yes. Yes, it was. Uh-huh. It was the first one we covered about the four-day school. The four-day school week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Read more about that at readline.com. Uh, Michael, how about you? That was my favorite, too, because I'll be moderating that panel on the four-day school week coming up. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you're going to be coming to Jefferson City, moderating a panel with, I'm sure, questions on what? Those for the side of the four-day school week and those against? Yes. Yeah. That'll be February 20, Monday, February 26th. And you're undoubtedly going in there with unbiased, objective questions, taking no position on either side. It'll sure look like it. <laughs> and Josh Mann, your favorite story of the week. Here's one that's a little different. Uh, it's a small story, maybe a little less impactful, but a local Christian school student won the Buchanan County Spelling Bee. It just so happens, in a coincidence, it was the grandson of the late Stanley Herzog. Get out! Yeah. Founder of the Herzog Foundation, right. the very building yeah. we sit in today. That's right. How cool. Well, those are just some of the stories you'll find at readline.com, but there's many, many more. So as we wrap up this week, be sure to keep up to date each and every day on all the latest news stories at readline.com. For all of us at the Lion, thanks for downloading the show, and we'll see you next time.